If you want to know about hum, uh, the human heart, we have a book for that. If you want to know about sin, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We got a book for that. If you want to know about how to reconcile uh, this man to that man, guess what? We got a book for that. We already got the book. We don't need something else. You're tuned into that deity, though. Let the assembly know. We worship God in the flesh. His name is Jesus, you know. Oh, we can open the word. This is the truth we can show. Planting a seed in your brain. Trust through a prayer for the grow. The Son of God is the most high. When that don't fly, they come at my neck like a bow tie. <laughs> From the throne to the manger, the mystery of God sent himself as the Savior. Welcome to episode 22 of That Deity Though, an apologetics podcast focused on the deity of Christ and the Trinity. I'm your host, E.C. Holmes, a.k.a. Yes, that's my real name. (laughs) Thanks once again for tuning in. Um, Today, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the world of apologetics. What are we to use as our lens? Is there a blueprint? Are we kind of free to make it our own? If so, is that freedom limited? Um, How do we reach people in 2021? I hope to answer those questions along with my guest, Rick Caldwell. If you would like to know how you can get your hands on some merch, um, we have an Etsy shop. Just go ahead and search That Deity, though, on Google. You can go ahead and click on the solo link in the description box and just click Merch. If you have questions or an episode request, please go ahead and email us at thatdeitythough at gmail.com. Follow us on social media for updates and dialogue. After you finish this episode, go ahead and leave that review on iTunes. It really helps us to become more visible for those looking for a good podcast. It encourages others. It lets them know what they can expect when they do tune in. After you leave that five-star review, make sure you copy and paste it on Facebook as well. But before we jump into our discussion for today, which I'm very excited about, it's a pretty uh, uh, tough hot topic for today. Um, but before we get into that, what I want to do is respond to a question from Gervin in Canada. If you would like me to respond to your question on the next episode, again, like I said, just go ahead and email us and I'll get to it as soon as I can. You can also just inbox me on social media as well. Just go ahead and look up that deity though. Um, Gervin wrote in and asked, are there verses in the Old Testament referring to the coming Messiah as Yahweh? We see the Messiah being called the Lord, our righteousness, El Gabor and Adonai. Indirectly, he is called Yahweh. But is there anything direct? Well, first, let me say thank you once again for your question. I did respond to Gervin directly right away. But I believe this would be beneficial for everyone else to hear. Um, At the same time, that was kind of a shotgun response. I just responded really quick. I also have some other verses that that I would like to share on this episode. I think this is a very important question. Um, Is the Messiah that was promised to come Yahweh? Um, Is he Yahweh or is he just an anointed man that God chose to send? What I love about this question is when you actually consider it and you survey the text, what you find is a high Christology isn't limited to the New Testament or simply what the apostles taught. And even if it was, it would be sufficient, right? Because God's word is true regardless of when he spoke it. So make sure you make that clear if someone's intention with their question is to try to isolate the scripture in any way. Now, this wasn't Gervin's approach. I believe Gervin is a believer, but this is a tactic that's used by non-believers and cults. They kind of want to put you in a box. They want to put you in this corner because that's how they've really been trained to operate, right? And so whether or not someone wants to limit you to the Old Testament, they want to limit you to just the red letters, the words that Jesus spoke. Um, If they try to limit you to the law, the first covenant, any of those things, um, just remember that all of Scripture 
is God breathed, right? All of scripture is profitable and we should never allow someone to silence God. All that God has revealed must be considered as we reason together with believers and as as we contend for the faith with non-believers. I just kind of wanted to say that as a disclaimer, the questioner is not in control. You are. (laughs) And so is there a verse in the Old Testament that refers to Jesus or that refers to the Messiah as Yahweh explicitly. Um, I just want to quickly look at three passages in scripture. The first one is going to be in Jeremiah chapter 23 verses five and six. There you have an announcement of a righteous king that was to come. Now, if I'm not mistaken, there's only three messianic prophecies in the book of Jeremiah. The others are found in chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, and also verse 21. This prophecy is um, this prophecy found in chapter 23 is also echoed 10 chapters later in chapter 33, verses 15 and 16. But here, I want to read the text here in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David, right? So the days are coming. This is a prophecy declares the Lord. It is the Lord who is speaking, right? When I will raise up for David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. (laughs) I would like to briefly look at two major words in this text. God is saying he will bring forth a righteous branch, right? This term should sound familiar to those who've already been studying or looking at scripture concerning the Messiah. And this branch would come forth, right? This branch would rule with righteousness and execute justice because all of the kings failed to meet God's perfect standard. Now, what is it that God has declared about this branch? Well, consider Zechariah chapter three, verses eight through 10. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Through his branch, God would bring about the forgiveness of sins, the removal of iniquity. This is a common thread that we see about the Messiah. In Isaiah, we learn about the righteous reign, right, of this branch. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, it speaks about God's spirit resting upon him, upon his branch, that will judge with equity. And then we get to that famous chapter in chapter 53, right, the passage about the Messiah and his ultimate mission to bear the sins of the world. I just want to read some verses here. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I just wanted to read those passages because what it explains is that this branch is ultimately referred to as the Messiah, the one that will come and rule righteously, the one who will come and bear the iniquity of God's people. Right. The forgiveness of sins will come through this branch that God has extended to his people. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses five through six, what is his name? (laughs) What is the name of this branch? Right. This is one of the most explicit verses in the Bible about the Messiah. This cannot be explained away. And it really doesn't need further explanation beyond the plain reading of the text. Now, when we look at verse six, it says in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Now let's look at this word Lord and let's see the Hebrew behind it, which you'll find right down here. And we can also look here. That Lord is coming from Yahweh. (laughs) And so the one who would come, the one who was the branch, this righteous branch that would be sent by God, His name will be called Yahweh is our righteousness. And you'll see other translations like the Lexham, the the CSB. What they'll do is they'll render the actual name and they won't put the Lord in all caps. So you actually have God's name in uh, in the scripture um, or in in these translations. So when you get to verse six, it'll say in his in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. And this is his name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. The next verse that explicitly refers to the Messiah as Yahweh can be found in Hosea chapter one, verse seven. I'm going to go ahead and read that as well. It says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Now I have this underlined because we have someone speaking here, someone who is going to have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them. I will save them. I will have mercy. This is the same person who is speaking here in the text. It's pretty obvious, but I just want to point that out. And so, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them. How will they be saved? By the Lord, their God. Okay. This is someone else that's being spoken of. I, back to the same first, the first one who was speaking, I, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. But how will they be saved? They will be saved by the Lord, their God. Now, this is an interesting text because it's one that you can just kind of read past if you don't really pay attention. But it would make no sense if I went and I told my wife, I'm going to pay the mortgage by your husband, E.C., <laughs> Um, It would make no sense to actually speak that way. And God doesn't speak that way in the text here in this verse here. What we see is that the one that will be the instrument used to save and uh, for mercy to be extended to the house of Judah will be their God, (laughs) the Lord, their God. Um, And even when we look in the, the, the text here, Lord is the same name. They will be saved by. Yahweh, their God. (laughs) And we see here again, we have someone else who is saving and having mercy on Judah through an instrument, right? 
I will save them by the Lord their God. And so this is another Messianic text that is speaking of the Messiah who would be the one to come and who would be the salvation of God's people. Um, real briefly, uh, real quickly, I just want to get to the final passage so we can get into the topic of the day. The third and final passage in answering the question, is there any verses in the Old Testament that explicitly refer to the Messiah as Yahweh? We're going to look at uh, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, which says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So I just want to stop. As we can see here in the text, <laughs> it is the Lord who is the one who is to come and to dwell in the midst of the people. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Whose people? The one who is to come and to dwell in their midst. Right. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. It's the Lord who declared it, and it's the Lord who sent the Lord that declared it. it this is very clear, right? Just like the passage before this one, um, even if that one was, you were a little uncertain about that one, this one is even more clear than the last verse that we looked at, which was Hosea 1, 7. But in this verse right here, in Zechariah chapter uh, 2, verses 10 and 11, what you have here is you have two distinct lords in one verse, <laughs> one that was sent and the one who sins. Now, someone might argue, well, that's not the same usage of the word Lord. One one is speaking about God. The other one is speaking about the one that he sent to rule. Right. That's that's just referring to the leader that he's anointed. Well, the problem is this leader that was to come is the one who's actually speaking in the text. He says, I will come. And I will dwell <laughs> this Messiah, this branch that is speaking here in Zechariah, which was actually written somewhere around five to six hundred years before Christ. And if I'm wrong, you can go ahead and correct me in the comment section. But here you have the Messiah speaking before he came and was born. In Zechariah's vision, he recognized the Messiah as Yahweh, <laughs> which is what we can see here in the text. Right. Declares the Lord. Well, who is this Lord? Well, this Lord is Yahweh, <laughs> right? And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Well, who is this Lord? This Lord is also referred to as Yahweh. As you can see, both the one who was sent and the sender are referred to by the holy divine name of the God of Israel, which again is Yahweh. Now, these are just a few passages that explicitly refer to the Messiah as Yahweh. The divinity of Christ is affirmed throughout the totality of scripture in so many different ways. And not just the fact that the Messiah that has come is divine, but that he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, bearing the same divine name as as the God of Israel, the name that will not be shared with any mortal creatures, the name that will not be shared with any kings or any prophets or any priests. And that name is Yahweh. And we see the Messiah bearing that name. Um, I hope you guys find this answer to be helpful in your defense for the faith. But with that being said, 
Let's get into it. He is Lord, so we ring. Open up the word, get with it. The eternal God, he is infinite. He put on some flesh and then lived in it. The hypostatic union, we get it. Christology, my apology, but no apology. Let's get with it. Well, then the prodigy, buddy, calm the seas. He quiet storms, yes, he did it. Uh, he's preeminent. Talk fishermen to fish from men. Turn grimy dudes to different men. It's by his life we live for him. And through his life we get to him. Validated by living. Today I'm joined by Rick Caldwell of Caldwell Apologetics, which is a ministry that that aims to provide the world with theological answers to questions about the Christian faith. Um, thanks for joining me for this episode of That Deity, though. Glad to be here, brother. Yeah, man, I really appreciate it. Um, if you don't mind just taking a little bit of time just to let the audience know who you are and maybe how you come to know the Lord. All right. So as uh, EC said, I'm Rick Caldwell with Caldwell Apologetics, and I have an apologetics ministry. It's actually been in existence since 2018. Uh, online. And I started the ministry uh, primarily because I I worked very often in in, uh, in ministry. I love to present the gospel. I love to share the good news. And I, I recognize that even in my interactions, there were a lot of questions that people had, a lot of objections that individuals had about the gospel, a lot of misconceptions people had about God. And I think it's very common when you share the gospel, especially in this pluralistic society we're in. There, there are all kinds of ideas about who God is. And so um, also with that being said, I, I was really adamant about and passionate about teaching God's word. So I was very fortunate uh, in the churches that I attended to have an opportunity to proclaim the word, to teach the word. And so combining these two loves together, the teaching of the word and evangelism, reaching the lost, uh, using that, uh, and also just a little bit of background, I'm also uh, in IT as well. So it's kind of combining all of these passions together, uh, leveraging internet technology, le leveraging online platforms. Um, God, I felt God was calling me to um, represent and uh, throw my hat in the ring, so to speak and uh and and defend the faith in the way that he has equipped me to do nice is there any mm -hmm. consistent issues that you've kind of encountered as you got into this whole arena of apologetics um i'm guessing you started within your local church um yes yeah so that's a great question it, it's actually all across the board uh there wasn't one specific issue uh, i know that on my channel there's a lot of content dedicated to the black hebrew israelites but if you check out my channel, that's not the only thing I deal with. I deal with Christian universalism. I deal with problems with a lack of sound teaching in churches. So I, I deal with a lot of issues. But I think the most fundamental issue, if I was to kind of put an umbrella around all those things, is a lack of sound teaching. Because I, I believe that really all those other issues are systemic or symptoms of a lack of sound preaching and teaching in churches. Right. So that's why uh, a big emphasis of mine is expository uh, teaching. Really important passion of mine, because what I also recognize in talking to people, especially those individuals that said they were in the Christian church, and then you start asking them, you always tell a story about, yeah, I was a believer. And then you start asking them things that believers should know and understand. And you get really bizarre answers right. that seem to indicate that perhaps this person really didn't understand what the Christian faith was really all about. 
Yeah, I agree. I've I've encountered some of those same responses. Right. <laughs> like you, you said you were a believer, but it seems like you didn't even right. understand the the foundational things, um, those things that are essential to the faith. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we understand that no one who is truly of God, you know, walks away um, exactly. as a non-believer. You know, those right. who are his, he keeps and he sustains them. Um, yeah, when I first actually came across your stuff, um, I'm actually not sure how I found your page. Um, I've been doing research on black Hebrew Israelism also because I have friends who got pulled into that whole thing. Um, man, I had countless conversations. One friend in particular, I can count on both hands how many times I had a conversation for more than two hours. Um, wow. And so I spent a lot of time as far as like on a personal level. Um, but yeah, when I first came across your channel, it was um, actually your breakdown of why Deuteronomy 28 um, does it say <laughs> what they believe it says? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. That's actually actually one of my most popular videos and one of the most criticized videos from the Black Hebrew Israelites. Um, they, I, I even had a conversation with a gentleman the other day. He was like, you don't understand what the Hebrew is saying and you need to go check out this guy's channel. Everyone's trying to send me to other people to check out their content to, to set me straight, so to speak. And so, yeah, I, I think that points back to Understanding context, understanding uh, the arguments that are being made is really, you know, really dealing with uh, proper hermeneutics. Right. So that's really the argument that was really being made. You know, it's like, how do you properly handle scripture? And so and and really the, the issue with Deuteronomy 2868 is just a case study of what happens when you don't properly handle God's word. Hmm. I totally agree. And a, a lot of the stuff that they would bring up kind of, I guess, flows into the conversation that we're having today. Um, really, this whole idea of victimology is what I call it. You know, this whole yeah. victimhood Ooh. mentality. Um, and yes. so the reason why I wanted you to, to join me, because we're being bombarded with all these questions, all these different ideas that I think has has to do with complex issues that we face in our culture, like every other society, you know, has some of these same issues. Um, but it always comes down to the difference in the way that we view these issues and their impact and in the different way that we view the way to go about combating and, f- and correcting these failures that, you know, we see in our society. And uh, so today we often hear terms such as social justice, right, systemic racism, white privilege, nationalism, among other things. And I think many in our culture, they would actually have us to believe in order for you to properly um, understand these things, you have to be woke. Right. That's that's the term of the day. Um, And so for these issues, the world, they've given their diagnosis. They think they put their finger on what the problem is, and they may have been making a case as far as what's our path forward and, again, correcting these things. But the question really is, does this line up with what the Scripture actually says concerning these matters? Um, and so, um, Rick, what, what caused you to kind of get into this conversation um, as far as social justice, um, CRT, um, these, these different issues that we're facing today? Because even, even before we even deal with the impact with the church— is that there's been a shift, a movement, and people have been recognizing this, you know, throughout culture, throughout the Western culture, there's been a shift in thought, a shift in focus, a shift away from things that are true to more to a subjective way of viewing the world, 
Uh, and so this is not one of the things I want to emphasize in this conversation is that this is what we're seeing is been something that has been cascading over time. And this is just one of the uh, iterations of what happens when people reject the truth of God's word, hmm. don't have a biblical worldview. So I, so even beyond the issues with the church, I, I start noticing issues in various aspects, you know, from education. I used to work, uh, by the way, in K-12 education as a, a consultant. So that, that's a bit of my background. So uh, I started to notice things in how even young people were being taught, right? Uh, I also, obviously, you know, as it relates to Christianity and with issues within the church, but just everything, every aspect of life being um, being uh, revised with these narratives about reality. All right. And these narratives are being presented in such a way that they are devoid of any truth. Right. They're presenting as a truth. But if under inspection, what you understand is that these things don't have any merit at all. And so um, it, it really boils down because we're believers, because we, we believe that all our thinking should be in submission to the Lord and to Christ. And if we're submitted to the word of God, and I say if, <laughs> that's important, then we can recognize things throughout the world. Like as we interact with people, the things that people talk about, the things that interest them, where their priorities tend to be, we, we can pick up on those things because if those things are antithetical uh, to the, the Christian worldview, our antennas should go up as believers. If we're being saturated daily, constantly by scripture, then various aspects of life will, will cause us to have pause and say, hey, this, this is uh, something is wrong here. Uh, something's not lining up, uh, especially when you start, you mentioned earlier about things like justice. We know that that is a, uh, a, a topic that people have been talking about. And so when I hear justice, I, you know, just like all things, I want things defined because without definitions, without context, you're, you're just, you're just setting yourself up for a pretext. So I need to understand when you say justice, what are you talking about? Mm. And if you believe in justice, then what foundation do you have to substantiate what justice is? Because justice, uh, by definition, uh, predicates something in the moral realm, right? R good, and good and bad, right and wrong, right? So when you start talking about that, but you don't have the proper foundation, now we're going to get ourselves in trouble. This, this issue that we're seeing with social justice, woke theology, woke church, whatever label you want to put on it, intersectionality, all of these things ultimately at its core are, are, are um, symptoms of a lack or appreciation of the biblical worldview. So, yeah, I totally that's agree. That's what I would have to say about that. Yeah, I totally agree. I see some of the same yeah. things. If your foundation yeah. is not scripture, um, right. you're going to be going all over the place right. to really fulfill um, this idol that you've created in your own heart. Mm -hmm. Um, right at at the service of yourself, and and usually that isn't um, in humility um, in comparison to your neighbor. Right, you're you're not considering others over yourself. You're really considering yourself. Um, and so so yeah, with this whole conversation of race theory, right? There's this term critical race yeah. theory. Some some may have never heard it before, or maybe they just never had a proper definition because, like you said, these things are kind of fluid. 
Um, right. They're constantly being added to. Um, they're constantly shifting and morphing and kind of taking over other ideas and bringing them in or reading these ideas backwards in the history kind of a thing. And so um, what is critical race theory and, and what is it offering as an answer to the problems that we're facing here in the States? Yeah. So w- when I answer that question, it's, it's important that I take you down memory lane. Okay, let's go. <laughs> because we have to take, we have to get in the car and take a drive and take a scenic drive and, and see the sights because there's some history behind that term. And so I think in, in order to educate your viewers uh, and those who will be listening is that it's important to understand the history. So that's why I say this thing has been brewing for a time. So you have to go back to Marx, Karl Marx, and you have to go back there because uh, the, the foundation of critical race theory is a Marxist foundation, all right? It's a Marxist foundation. It's a secular foundation. And the reason why I say that is that when you go back and you look at the Communist Manifesto, uh, the opening of the Communist Manifesto, and I suggest anyone who wants to educate themselves on these issues, read the Communist Manifesto. Just take time. It'll, it'll take you an hour. You know, if you take an hour out of your day, it'll take you an hour to read it. But in, in the opening of the Communist Manifesto, it said in life, the world, the basic principle of life is a world that's full of struggle, struggle between groups. So in the, communi- in the Communist Manifesto, since it was an economic treaties, it was, it, was a, it was a struggle between the c- capitalist, capital and labor, right? The bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So that was that was the struggle. That was the battle. Right. And so you basically have the what I would call identity politics. Right. In a nutshell, because you you're not dealing with individuals, you're dealing with groups. So the struggles between groups. And so Marx had always envisioned this communist revolution to overthrow capital, to overthrow uh, the, the, the bourgeoisie, the overthrow. And so that didn't happen. There was no communist revolution. And so questions came as to why did this communist revolution, why didn't this communist re- revolution take place? Then you later on, you had philosophers, uh, Italian philosopher, and there's other people in play, but I'll just single him out. His name is uh, Antonio Gramsci. And what he theorized was the fact that the reason why the communist um, revolution did not take place is because there was these, uh, what he called, he, he called hegemonic power. There was a dominant power structure in place that that seemingly controlled, uh, you know, all the social norms of the time. Right. And that's going to play into later on that whole idea of hegemonic power is going to play into our conversation as we continue to talk about these issues. So he's he, he this is where you start to get the idea of not the economic theory that Marx was bringing, but the whole idea of a cultural or social Marxism. Because what he looked at is that there was social dynamics at play that kept this uh, communist revolution from taking place. Okay, and so now what we have to do is now shift to Germany. So I'm fast forwarding earlier 20th century. You have to shift to Germany. And now we're dealing with what's called the Frankfurt School in Germany. Okay, and so at the Frankfurt School in Germany, it, it was pretty much a hotbed for communist thought. Right. And so you had various individuals there. Uh, and actually, just a fun fact for everyone, uh, it, was a, it was later called uh, the organization that was 
in that Frankfurt School that was a responsible, it was called the Institute for Social Research. It was later changed, the name was changed to the uh, Karl Marx University, wow. believe it or not. Yeah. And so these guys got together. Uh, I, I, will leave, I will give you a few names like Max uh, Hark, Hark, Harkheimer. So you had individuals like this, and he was a philosopher and a social scientist. And the whole idea was, is to how to ingrain Marxist thought, Marxist concepts into society, right? And so it's, it's think of this as a, a think tank, right? The reason why I, that was so interesting in the 1930s, later on when um, during the uh, Nazi party, they had later, before World War II, they had you know shut everything down and actually the Frankfurt School eventually was moved to the United States, Columbia University, New York City. Uh, you know, it was transported over there and, um, it, you know, it was it was interesting because you had these guys. I'm going to just give you a few names so that later on people want to research some names. So I mentioned Max Horkheimer, but you also had people like Eric Fromm. You also had people like uh, Herbert Marcuse and Walter Benjamin. And it was and they had a principle and it, uh, called the continental European philosophy. And that's just a fancy way of saying Marxism. <laughs> that's really what that is, okay? Uh, and so they, they were using this think tank in order to propagate Marxist ideas, okay? So I'm giving you, so this is early 20th century, okay? Uh, the Karl Marx University, that's a 1960s thing, okay? But just to give everyone... When, it, when you start to hear about critical race theory, the thing we need to understand is that the history is really b bigger than race. If, we, if we're just focused on black and white and race, we're really losing sight of the overarching broad range of what critical race theory, and we're, really what I'm laying out, not just critical race theory, but really it's, it's uh, generalization, that is critical theory. Part, and, and what we need to also understand, when we think of critical, right, we're thinking of logical, we're thinking of rational, we're thinking of discourse to get to, uh, to uh, be true sinkers in order to uh, 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 determine an end or, or get to the truth, right? But, be, but that's a misnomer uh, because in critical theory, which is the foundation of critical race theory, critical is not about objective truth at all. Critical is really subjectivity. Critical is really applying narrative. That is, uh, when you start thinking of things like, and I'm going to throw out terms for everybody, so it's good that we bring up these terms because it gives everyone homework to do, but it also shows you the, the, the level of depth that is involved when we start talking about these issues. So, for example, when you start thinking of the whole idea of uh, standpoint epistemology, that, you know, from my vantage point is where truth is defined based on my narrative and my story. That is the whole idea of storytelling and truth or, or, uh, or authority, because there's really ultimately no objective truth here. We need to recognize that. But I gain my authority is not based on objective truth because that's problematic. We're going to get back to that in a moment. But what is authoritative is the storytelling telling and the meta narrative, the narrative that I have based on my group dynamic, right? 
And the reason why objective truth is problematic, because objective truth is part of that hegemonic structure. Remember, I talked about Antonio Gramsci before. So he said the reason why that communist revolution didn't happen is because there was a power structure of the dominant class. Later, we would call that dominant class the oppressor class, right? That oppressor class kind of put everybody in check because they set the norms. They set the culture. And because they set the norm and set the culture, that mitigated any effort to have any type of revolution. Therefore, within the idea of critical theory, that dominant structure doesn't have any authoritative weight. But here's the problem. Within this dominant, they call the dominant structure or the oppressive structure, you have things like rationality. You have things like logic. You have things like uh, evidence, uh, things that you need in order to get to the truth. But that's considered under the auspice and the umbrella of the dominant culture and, and of the group that's considered the oppressor group. You see the problem? So they've replaced objective truth with subjectivity, with meta narrative, with storytelling. So those things now become uh, the currency, all right? instead of the things of uh, things that help us get to objective truth. So, um, so that's, that's part of the background, right? And then fast forward. So fast forward, critical race theory came as a result. So we got a fast forward kind of uh, 1980s. Okay. Critical race theory uh, coming from the foundation of critical theory actually came out of critical legal studies. So that's what everyone needs to understand. It came out of, of looking at uh, jurisprudence, looking at how certain court cases were adjudicated, right? And looking at that and saying, hey, there's a problem here. Or, or there was a sense, let's put it like this, there was a sense, because remember, everything's subjective. There's a sense there's a problem with uh, the whole idea of things being, the law being equal, the law... Um, not being um, skewed one to one group or another group, right? So you now we introduce someone like uh, Derek Bell. Okay, so Derek Bell, a, an attorney. Derek Bell, also a Marxist. Okay, so this is important. So you have this, this Marxist line that started all the way back in Germany. It's still continuing. That's still, that's still at that same foundation. It's still in play. And what, he, what they're doing essentially is they're looking at these old court cases. They're looking at Supreme Court cases. They're looking at these cases. And what they're surmising is that there was, there was a white supremacy underbelly that was evident, even if the people didn't uh, consciously, see, the, that's the other part of it, even if the people didn't consciously uh, seek to, uh, to uh, elevate a white supremacist agenda, the very system in place was designed to promote white supremacy hmm. and whiteness. You hear, you've been, I've been hearing this whiteness thing a lot lately, right? Right. right? So Derek Bell and his uh, colleagues, right? So he had a, a group of other individuals. They got together and they and they postulated, hey, you know that uh, the issue of race was was prevalent in how these court cases were adjudicated. And so that gave way to critical race theory. Okay. This so you see, you see, yeah, I had to, I got to tell, like I was telling you, I have to give you the single route. Mm -hmm. 
Because if I just tell you critical race theory without explaining the background, there's a lot of important details that need to be uh, covered. Especially when you consider where it came from and who was involved in it. Right. Um, it it kind of seems like that oppressor class um, that's constantly being uh, the target um, seems to be the origin of the whole thing anyway. Right. And let me give you, I'm going to give you a line here that's important about what they, uh, out of the critical legal studies, the law tends to enforce, reflect, constitute, uh, even legitimize the dominant social and power relations through social actors who generally believe they are neutral. See, they believe they're neutral and arrive at their decisions through an objective process of legal reasoning. So, would it on the surface with what Derek Bell and his colleagues are saying is that everything appears to be above board. Uh, there, there appears to be no bias, but because the system was the, always designed to promote one class over another class, even if those involved have no um, direct or deliberate intention to skew things one way or the other, that will be the net result because that's the foundation of that system. Hmm. It gets deep. Yeah. <laughs> it gets very deep, deep doesn't right? it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now leading up to the conversation today, right, there's this theory, right, and it has to do with this, this structure that came from overseas, it comes to New York, it, it spreads, kind of snowballs. Um, and now you have this concept um, of groups, right? And right. so the, the group part that's tied into it is this idea of race, right? When in reality, there's one race. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, yeah, you bring up something important. So remember, the foundation is not a Christian foundation. Right, right. So it's so, all skewed so, to begin with. Yeah, so you don't have a biblical anthropology. Mm, right. You don't have, yeah, it, that's problematic because what you have are group dynamics. That's why I said earlier when I was defining things, you have the, what I call the epitome of uh, identity politics. Hmm. Right, right. Down to the identity of ourselves. Again, right. like I was saying earlier, it's just the preservation of the self-image, um, the love of, of self to where you're all that matters, right? Maintaining that is all that matters. Um, and so now today, okay, that kind of gives us this, this background historically. So now 2021, um, who are some of these organizations? Um, who are the leading voices in our culture today that's promoting this critical race theory? Yeah. So let, let's, let's give an excerpt, an example. So you might've heard of something called the 1619 project, right? Yep, I heard 1619 it. Project uh, was an effort by the New York Times and a journal- journalist by the name of Hannah uh, Nicole Jones. When I, uh, no, Nicole Hannah Jones. I had to get the name right. Nicole Hannah Jones. So it was an effort by Nicole Hannah Jones and the New York Times to remote uh, kind of the, uh, a new founding story of America. And they called it the 1619 Project, right? So the whole, the whole idea behind this, and I'm, I'm giving you an example because this is going to be extremely, extremely relevant, because the whole idea of the 1619 Project was say, hey, we 
historically, when we were in school being taught years ago, uh, we didn't we didn't have a right understanding of how this country was founded. We were told that this country started in 1776, but the real founding of this country was in 1619. And so what they're saying is the real founding of this country was was based on slavery, slave trade, the slave system, the slave uh, slavery. So that that's what the that's the narrative that they're creating. Because part of, and this is something I didn't bring up before, part of the goal of critical race theory is also historical revisionism. <laughs> That's also part of the goal, too, is, that, is to essentially retell the story. No, you didn't really see, here's the problem, you see, you didn't really know American history. We're going to tell you the true American history and really what was really the motivation of how this country was started, Right. And so you have initiatives like even the New York Times and the 1619th Project. And so I bring that up because that's something that's been all over the place. So I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably heard at least something about the 1619 yep. Project because it's been front and center. And the reason why it's front and center is being literally pumped into classrooms uh, in school districts all over the country. Right. So that's one example. Um, another person I would mention is a person by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw. Now, Kimberly Crenshaw, she is a kind of the protege of uh, Derrick Bell because Derrick Bell introduced the whole idea of critical race theory. He was kind of the, the father of critical race theory, some say. And she added to critical race theory the whole I idea of intersectionality. So that was her contribution because, look, remember, looking back at the whole dynamic of what was going on with critical legal studies – the issue that was the conclusion was, look, black people got a raw deal in the legal system, right? And, and one thing I want to bring up, because somebody might listen to this and say, so Rick, EC, so you're saying there wasn't any uh, prejudices or injustices in America with the legal system? We're not saying that at all. That's right. not, I hope, I want to be speak loud and clear. We need to be truth tellers when it comes to history. If, as men and women of God, we need to be truth tellers. And, but the thing is, we need to tell all of the truth. We don't, need to skew the, we don't need to skew the narrative one way. We don't need to skew the narrative the other. We need to tell it all, warts and all, as they say, right? We need to tell everything. And so we're not denying, I'm not denying that there were, there were atrocities. I'm just going to bring up one thing with the redlining here in a minute, because I know that comes up quite a bit. But we're, we need to tell the whole truth so that no one's denying that. But remember, the whole idea of critical race theory and critical theory is not truth telling, it's subjectivity. There was a sense that things didn't align our way, uh, the way for, for people of color. And that was the whole idea. They would look at these cases, regardless of the facts, and say, well, things didn't line up according to uh, people of color. Therefore, we need to dedicate an emphasis on... Um, uh, social justice efforts, because that there is a there is an action item assigned to this. That is, we need to not only know the problem, but we need to do something to address the quote unquote problem. Hmm. And so that's the social justice aspect of this whole thing. And so uh, I think it, it would be important. But Kimberly, the point is, Kimberly Crenshaw, she brought intersectionality because as she looked at these cases, it, she what her concern was not only with race, but also with gender, 
because she saw that there were dynamics in play from her perspective where there was challenges with not with just race, but also with gender. So now that's that's now when you, if you've ever seen a, a chart or a diagram of uh, intersectionality, you will see you know, gender, you will see race, and then you'll see all these other tentacles, right? All these other, um, these dynamics of intersectionality. And remember the whole goal with her was essentially the more points of connection, the, uh, the more authoritative you are and the more oppressed you are and the less points of confluence, that means the more you're part of the dominant class. So like a white Christian male would have zero points of confluence, uh, uh, intersectionality. And so in that instance, they would be considered part of the dominant culture. Someone who is black, uh, female, um, lesbian, right? They would, they would be considered, you know, kind of the ultra oppressed group, right? So like two different ends of the spectrum, so to mm-hmm. speak. So that's what she, she contributed uh, as well. And I can give you some other names because I think there's some other names uh, that may be worth uh, even looking at as well. So um, in there are some other names like you have uh, Robin D'Angelo. So Robin D'Angelo has that book called uh, White Fragility. Mm-hmm. So she gets paid thousands of dollars to go around doing lectures to tell uh, businesses and organizations that essentially you're racist, even if you don't think you're a racist, you are. And, and now you got um, people singing about being less white. Yes, exactly. So you you basically have a lot of uh, shaming going on, shaming tactics, white guilt tactics in place. So she's uh, her books. You know, uh, I know that even last year, her book, White Fragility, is uh, even on Amazon was like one of the best selling books. Right. And so you have uh, Peggy McIntosh, who is another uh, individual. I think Peggy McIntosh, if I'm not mistaken, she was the one that was talking about when it comes to white privilege that 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 you have this essentially like a backpack. Uh, whites have this backpack of privilege with all these things in this backpack that gives them a leg up or an advantage over another uh, over people of color or other groups of people. You also have uh, Patricia Hill Collins. You have Richard Delgado. Richard Delgado actually collaborated with um, Derek Bell on a book about, uh, I believe, an introduction to um, to critical race theory. So they collaborate together. And then you also have Beverly Tatum as well. And I would even go out and say, at this juncture, just about most universities, liberal programs, liberal arts are already uh, taken over by the uh, presuppositions and the ideas of critical race theory. Because one of the things I want to jump in and say this, I think this is really important in our conversation. Some people will say, listen, guys, Rick, you're just over the top. You're just being hyperbolic. Uh, I don't subscribe to critical race theory. Here's the problem. The presuppositions of critical race uh, theory already have their tentacles in every in an education system, in the legal system, it's all over the place. So just because you're not out there confessing with some type of you know, fist raising the hand with a manifesto saying, I am an advocate for critical race theory, you may actually subscribe to those presuppositions. Because uh, I'll tell you a, a great example of this. There was a debate with Neil Shinvey and um, I think Razul Berry. You, you, uh, there was on, uh, I think it was the Unbelievable podcast, okay, with Justin Briley, mm. okay? And Razul Berry, he was saying, look, 
I I don't know what critical theory is. And I think his background, he came out like uh, African studies. I was like, you've already got, you already got indoctrinated. <laughs> you already got, <laughs> hey, brother, you already got indoctrinated. Because all of those like sociology, social science, all of those disciplines have already jumped on the uh, CRT train. Mm-hmm. They, they're already on the train. And mm-hmm. so when you're getting when you're when you're going to those universities or those programs, those professors and instructors, their goal is to basically deprogram you, decolonize, quote unquote, decolonize you, uh, help you, uh, quote unquote, unlearn the things you have learned and then put a new program in. And that new program, its foundation is CRT at, at its foundation. Right. Yeah. The problem is the foundation is in Bible. Yes. Right. And you're, you're saying that they're addressing these issues, right? Like with the books mm-hmm. and with the talks and with the curriculums. Um, a friend of mine, his, his son is in a school district here in York, Pennsylvania. And this was trying to be incorporated there. There was a whole oh. list of books and um, different academic studies and the the meeting that they had, it was live, so you can check it out on Zoom. And we're at work watching um, when we should have been working. But we're, we're watching this, and he's, like, really upset. He's a white guy, and he's seeing all of these things. And, um, and so people are coming at him with all of these different things about his privilege and how he's a racist and, and stuff like that. And his school, the school system that his son is in, actually stood up, and they rejected it. Um, and so it was, it was exciting to see that, um, especially when you consider how do they look at writing these different wrongs that are happening right. or, and that have happened. I want to, I want right. to get your reaction to something. Okay. Um, oh, here we go. Because some of these answers we know, and, and this isn't to establish equality, which we all agree with. It's this idea of equity um, which basically equality means that we have equal opportunity to pursue the things that we want to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, equity is the equal outcome, right? That we should all have the same outcome. Yeah. If you started off in one way and this person started off up here, we should put all of these things in place. So now you're up here with, the, with yeah. the, right? So that's, what? The, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, let's let's watch, uh, bring up what you have. And I was going to continue on that. Oh, did that I cut you? Because I think did I a, cut you off? That, no, no, that's fine. Oh, okay, we can okay. continue. I mean, you go ahead and show me, but that's going to be more because it made me think of something else. Well, we'll, we'll we can talk about that momentarily. OK, don't forget. So we can we can build. No, we I can got build it. on locked that. and loaded. OK, so some of these ideas that they have when it when it comes to their answer to how to write these things. Um, obviously, we we've heard about defunding the police all last year. Yeah. Right. Which is a ridiculous thing. Um, another thing that um, groups like Black Lives Matter and um, I think it's called Movement for Black People. Um, I think that's what they're called, but they're also affiliated with BLM. Um, they want to drop the charges against protesters, uh, which we have the First Amendment right to protest. So I'm guessing the protesters they're talking about are the looters and the yeah, rioters. The ones that, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, maybe burn some buildings down and right. maybe defaced some property and, right. you, know, you know, just protesters. That's all we're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> and so something that caught me off guard, right? You would think now you just don't get caught off guard anymore. Um, but one of the things that they are promoting right now is to decriminalize sex work. I'm not sure oh, yeah. if you heard that. Yeah, so, I've, uh, I'm not surprised because this this is going to be 
uh, you know, the whole idea of intersectionality was will always find an oppressed group. Right. See, the road to oppression is endless in this whole paradigm. That's the problem. Well, so what I want to always be able to raise their hand and say, look, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an oppressed group and you got to add them to the list and deal with their set of grievances. So what I want to read to you is um, I'm like, I couldn't believe this. I'm like, hold on. How, how are they justifying this whole thing? So I came across um, what's called Open Society Foundation. And they actually have this work. It's like a 12 page PDF listing 10 reasons to decriminalize sex work. And so I want to read these 10 reasons to you. Um, And then I just kind of want your response to these 10 reasons. All right. Are you ready for these? (laughs) Um, Go ahead. The first reason is um, it respects human rights and dignity. Um, now you can jump well, in at any yeah, point. Yeah, let's jump. Let's like let's deal with them as as they come. Okay. See this this is a uh, this is what the problem is is that the foundation that that critical race theory has is a godless foundation. I want every if you're a Christian, I want I want I don't want to mix any words. The critical race theory. That's why I had to lay out the history. Lest you lest you be food or hoodwinked. Okay. Critical race theory has a godless foundation. If it has a godless foundation, then the solutions will be godless solutions, right? And so you're, you're hearing things uh, that do not present the truth of what it means to be made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, that we all have intrinsic worth and value because we're image bearers, right? And it denies the reality that because we're creating the image of God, we are, there's also a purpose by, for which we are created. So you even deny the purpose because there's someone who has given us the purpose, the creator and lawgiver. So the, all of that, that foundation, that is put aside. And now what we have is truly a humanistic uh, foundation. Uh, that's based on whatever feels good to me. Remember what I said about critical race theory. It's not critical because ultimately it's subjective. So one group of people can say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm being oppressed and I define injustice like X. Another group of people say, I'm being oppressed. I'm, fine, I'm defining injustice like Y. And this is how you get something like that. That's the first point as your first point. Yeah, so res- respects human rights and dignity, which is I thought was pretty interesting. Which from obviously, job. from we understand, is the opposite. Right, <laughs> it's the right. polar opposite. The, the dignity that we have. Yeah, yeah, we 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 have dignity because yeah. of, like you said, we were created yeah. in God's image. Um, and so another thing is, it supposedly helps guard against violence and abuse. I'm not sure how this changes anything. Um, people are still going to be abused because of that kind of work. That's just the nature of the business. Um, it challenges police abuse and violence. And so that's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, let's you're about talk to say about something? abuse in mm-hmm. general, because I think what and, I, and, I, and there there is a movement that because, you know, you're talking about these sex workers. And so their their obje- uh, objective is to try and make this as mainstream as possible. <clears throat> And let's talk about the fact that we do live in a culture that's highly pornographic, mm-hmm. right? Think about the content that's being produced now, even on on-demand streaming services. There, there is an ob- there is an objective and there's an agenda, and so this is part of that objective and agenda is to is to make this normal. That is that the whole idea of uh, 
uh, heteronormativity of uh, the nuclear family, that structure. We we gotta we gotta down the patriarchy. We have to do away with that because that's getting in the way of our agenda. Uh, and so we we have to start putting these things that should bring shame, right? Should cause give people pause. We we want to now put these things in a positive light, right? Uh, I mean, this is this. I put this in the same category of the whole movement of polyamory movement that you see going on right now. It's it's all part of the. It's all in the same umbrella, right? And so let's talk. I'm going to talk briefly about abuse. What is the greatest abuse? Because the thing is, we when we found when we give our answers, our answers need to be grounded in scripture, in the biblical worldview, right? So the world's going to do the, the world's going to do the world, okay? And so. We understand that it's an, it's an abuse is always when something that God has created for one purpose is being used from the, for incorrect purpose. That's the nature of abuse. So they're, they're talking about, oh, it's a, you know, abuse is when, you know, a guy may take, do something to this woman or whoever's involved. The, 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 the singular abuse is the misuse of sex, Right. It's it, anything outside the bounds of the marriage covenant is an abuse. But what you have to do, you have to kind of, you know, redact that and say, no, really, the true abuse is when someone engages or does some type of transaction and things go south. Now, that's the true abuse. No, the true abuse was the very foundation that create, creates an industry. Mm-hmm. Where that transaction even takes place in the first place, right? Right. That's the that's the that's the signal where abuse. you can add insult to injury. Then you right. add an abuse on abuse, right? But never getting to the core, right. where we should never be in a position where that's seen as okay for it, it, someone to this, put themselves in that position to be abused yeah. even even further. Right. It's the same argument people use to say that yeah, I'm uh, I'm uh, pro I'm I'm pro life with caveats, right? The, the caveat is we need to deal with economic issues because, you know, the issue is this. Uh, if this person had the money and the means, then they wouldn't end up in a situation. Wait a minute. The issue is the morality. Yeah, right. You just back that train up, brother. The issue is two people made a decision to sin. So that's that's not that's not try to like add, as you said, insult or injury mm-hmm. by then kind of moving the goalpost, because our fundamentally we look at the fact that the whole structure is broken. It's rotten to its core. And we need to address that head on. Mm-hmm. That's a systemic right, issue for sure. A systemic yeah. sin issue. Uh, so reason number four to decriminalize sex work is. <laughs> Improves access to justice. How? Oh, now, <laughs> it's, it's now a I'm going to read the next one because it's in the same it's in the same vein. So number four is it improves access to justice. And number five is challenges the consequences of having a criminal record. Yeah. OK, so you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the standard is God, but we understand that the people who are promoting this, God is not in their thinking. God is not in the vanguard of, of their agenda. So we understand that. But that doesn't deny that reality. Right. Absolutely. Uh, doesn't deny that at all. So uh, they they want to redefine justice. That's what I said earlier, is that it, this is a battle for, of definitions. 
and we can change justice. And it's subjective because one person's view of justice, like I was saying earlier, is uniquely different from another person's view of justice. For this, and the justice is singularly focused on what? The individual. This is the, this is the definition of what I call the sin of partiality. Because it's focused on the person, mm. right? And their unique set of circumstances. And that's not true justice. Justice doesn't start with, let me check and see who you are and your circumstances, and then we'll determine how things should be. Uh, I think there is a, and I, I don't, I, there is actually uh, a few decades ago, there was an individual, I think his name is John Rawls, I think, and, and maybe, maybe later on I might have to correct that, but he had an idea of justice. I think this kind of fits, instead of having an objective principle of justice, the whole idea of justice now becomes essentially, I think his thesis is whatever society feels is, a, is attainable, hmm. right? So uh, to break that down in a nutshell, whatever we feel is good for us becomes the terms and the conditions for what justice looks like, right? And so this example, these five things that you mentioned is a prime example of, of that issue. Not that to problem. mention, isn't Lady Justice blind for a reason? <laughs> yeah <laughs> considering and, 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 and those and those people would have a problem with lady justice because they say lady justice is built on a racist foundation that only looks to promote white supremacy and the power structure so as soon as you get those words out of your mouth they're ready to give a rebuttal to tell you how wrong you are uh because they don't understand that ultimately that that the principles that form our justice system even though we know that we have you know, we have people who are, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, sinners, mm -hmm. sinners that adjudicate. We, we don't deny that. But the principles are built on a Judeo-Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. Those principles are are built on that nonetheless. Right. And so but Lady Justice would fall on the intersectionality chart because it's a female. Right. So she's <laughs> she's a part of the oppressed class. So. Oh, man. See, so, I didn't think about that. <laughs> number six is. uh I think I, uh, I think this is where we're at. Number six is it improves access to health services. Um, wow. Number seven goes with that as well. It reduces risk. Man, this is going to be another how. Um, it mm -hmm. reduces risk of HIV in sexually transmitted infections. This that that is the most counterintuitive, ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Redu how? I mean, making see what they're doing. They're making all kinds of assertions. But there, notice what, what's going on here. Remember I said the fundamental issue with a critical theory paradigm is there is it's the void of what? The truth. Right. And you see it. Look, I, someone who wants what they want, someone with their sinful desires that wants what they want can come up with any number of reasons and excuses to rationalize their perspective. But what they lack is the truth. Absolutely. I mean, how do you decrease STIs? by allowing sex work to go unchecked. Um, I mean, if we look at where most of this stuff comes from, um, where most of this stuff spreads is from, mm -hmm. you know, is from these type of actions. You know what I mean? It's from sexual immorality, breeds all of these different kind of diseases and different things like that. And so mm -hmm. if, you, if you take away the criminal side of it, um, all you're doing is letting people loose, right? Kind of handing them over to, the, yeah. to these inordinate um, passions and desires that yeah, they have. We, 
here's the thing we in regards to sex work we already have the case study we already have places around the world where uh like red light districts and things like that those things are prevalent already and and people do unscrupulous things just to just to keep that industry going but because but money's changing hands that's yeah. not true because number eight right <laughs> is it promotes safe working conditions oh man does anyone know about um man does anyone know what happens when people are taken from their families and and enslaved to to do all kinds of sex acts uh that that uh that is happening all over the world Mm -hmm. young young men and young women are being are there's whole industries billions of dollars where people, young men and young women, are being taken from their families and exploited. You're talking about sex trafficking, which is yeah, number nine. Yeah, sex trafficking. There we go. That's where well, I was talking. Well, here we are. Number, number nine, it says it allows for effective responses to trafficking. How? That's a great question. Now, they give arguments for all of these. Of course. Now, now of one course. of the, the craziest ones is number 10. Um because it really bucks against God even more, um, as if none of the other stuff did, right? Um, but it challenges state control over bodies and sexuality. Now, let me read you mm-hmm. their argument, because this is one of the shortest responses um, or examples of why this is something that's a reason for this. Um, decriminalization of sex work recognizes the right of all people to privacy and freedom from undue state control over sex and sexual expression. The different treatment of sex work from other types of work is an example of government's long history of exerting control over bodily autonomy, self-determination, and sexuality. Decriminalization respects gender equality and sexual rights. Laws against sex work intrude into private sexual behaviors and constitute a form of state control over the bodies of women and the LGBTI persons who make up a large majority of sex workers worldwide. Like state controls over reproductive rights, a.k.a. the ability to murder your baby or the right to murder your baby, and sexual acts between consenting adults, um, we know what that is, criminal law prohibiting sex work attempts to legislate morality right with scant regard for bodily autonomy and so for this reason uh we should decriminalize decriminal i can't even say it because <laughs> it doesn't even it doesn't yeah, make yeah, sense i, know. I, mean, I can't even enough. i can't even get it out now yeah i know uh, it's like it's like god saying don't even try to say right word. don't even do it right <laughs> And so, 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 what do you think about this? I mean, this caught me off guard, and and you would think we've seen enough these days to where nothing would surprise you. Um, but well, this is an answer, though, to righting the the wrong and the, these inequities yeah. that we have between these oppressed classes versus the oppressor class. Yeah. So the answer to uh, quote their quote definition of injustice is more injustice. There, that's that's that is the mo of critical theory. The MO critical theory is always looking at things that they perceive as injustices. And then the solution is, guess what? Injustice, true injustice. That's what the solution is for them. And so um, 
they, they, you know, the, even the whole thing, notice the other aspect when you were reading the whole thing about, you saw the tentacles uh, of um, intersectionality when they mentioned uh, LGBTQI, you know, that aspect was brought, you, you know, you will always get that in there, right? Uh, that, 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 that's, that's part and parcel of the whole package. You actually have to have that in there. You can't have rights and quote unquote rights in one area unless you deal with, you know, LGBTQIA plus rights. That has to be in there as well. And so um, once again, you know, the, the world's going to be the world and do what the world wants. It's all about fulfilling their passions and desires. And, and that's all, I mean, there's nothing that they said, you know, because we're, we're, we believe, we submit ourselves to the word of God. To scripture. There's nothing that they said in there where I said, oh, oh man, they make a good point. I really, I really should reconsider why this is a good idea. A- actually, everything they said is um, how claiming to be wise, they became fools. It, it, it speaks to that. Mm-hmm. They think this is wisdom, right? But truly what they're doing is utter foolishness. You put this in place. That's why I said we already have microcosms of this all over the world. You put this in place. And here's the thing. We, we can look at history. We have history. As students of the truth, we also are students of history. Any society that embraced this type of structure, it always goes down. It never goes on the up. It always goes on the down. You never see an increase and in thriving of the society. Anytime there's a, there's a breakdown of the roles, proper roles of men and women, the proper roles of men, women, and children. Cause you know, yeah. Cause the thing is, if, if they, if they really want to uh, be 100 with it, with the emphasis right now on pedophilia and people saying we need, we need rights in that area. Cause you know, I can't help myself. I want to be with a, a boy or a young girl. Then you have to include them in there too, because that they're, they're under a quote unquote injustice. Mm. So you, everybody's got to be thrown in there. Right. And so think about what happens to society when there are no safeguards at all, right? When the safeguards are removed, you're going to see what, how, how rampant sin really is. You know, that's why, you know, think about what Romans chapter 13, because I like to be in the Bible, how the civil magistrates weren't given us, were given the sword for a reason, Right. And so one of the aspects of justice, retributive justice, is the con- just civil magistrate. God, this is a God-ordained thing because in Scripture it says this is a servant of God, right? It's designed in order to curtail this kind of thing. But because people do not respect God and have God in their thinking, you know, we don't need to worry about laws and when protecting people and as image bearers and, and human dignity. Oh, that's, that's old way of thinking. We, we are progressive in our thinking and we recognize that if I have an impulse or a desire, I should be able to express that desire and no one should hold that against me. That is absolute insanity. Hmm. So that's progressive. Well, so progressive that they keep kicking yeah. the definitional ball. Where, yeah. where here's the thing, uh, it's gonna keep moving because there's no objective standard. Right. This is the point. This is the danger. When you lack an objective standard, the goalpost just moves in about a million different directions. Yep. Everything becomes an injustice and anything and everything becomes a remedy. Yep. And whenever something doesn't fit into the definition, they of create a, they create a new we, word that they can control we, the definition we, of. 
which means if you get on the CTCRT roller coaster, ladies and gentlemen, it's the roller coaster that never ends. It's the ride that never that never comes to an end. You will there will always be a grievance. There will always be a group or a, or, or a segment in society that will raise their hand and say, we got a problem, we have an injustice, and these are the 12, 100 things you need to do in order to rectify it. And then when you do those 100 things, guess what? There's another 100 things <laughs> coming right behind that because there's no, and I tell people this, this all the time, there is no redemption in CRT. Hmm. There is no forgiveness in CRT because the thing I wanted to bring up, because there there are these these groups of people that call themselves advocates or uh, the ones that are, are coming, you know, when, it, when we when we start thinking about the racial politics dynamic where you might have uh, a white person who's saying, you know, uh, I'm an ally. That's the word. I'm an ally to the cause. Well, guess what? Within the, the um, within CRT, they have a concept called um, interest convergence. You heard of that before? No. So the whole idea of interest convergence is this is that in order to get the dominant group to play nice and go along, you have to find something that they're also interested in, you know, maintaining as well. For example, look what BLM did. How did they get a lot of these, uh, these people to acquiesce and be allies? They, they, they threatened to burn down their businesses. They threatened to, to destroy property. Oh, oh I'm, I'm uh, raised fist. Uh, we support BLM, right? Um, and there's a there's actually a documentary. Uh, the one the one that we were watching the other day ne- with ne- uh, Nini's Nini's, yeah. yeah, yeah, yes, that's an example. He didn't. They didn't raise their fist. They didn't he, say the right statements well, and, and, and it, the consequences. And it was worse because that started because when they were looking through the, I forget who he said it was that was saying, look through all these lists of businesses right. and whoever doesn't have just the black picture. Right. right, the black, the black square, yeah, the, the black, the black blackout. square, yeah. and they yeah. pass Nini's, which has become a staple right. in the community where this this young man knew everyone's name. Yeah, he knew their orders when they walked in. He loved them. They loved going there because of that. So they knew he cared about the community and all people, but of because course. he didn't have this black square, you know, they they were the first ones to turn on him. The key is whoever everyone must give a pinch of in, uh, incense to Caesar. Hmm. Whoever doesn't do that, they're on the hit list. And this is this is what I mean by interest convergence. So what you have, you have people say, look, we're going to do the work. We're going to align ourselves with the cause. We're going to do the work. As I say, we're going to do the work. But here's the problem. CRT proponents, they're ultimately distrustful and skeptical of any person that's part of the dominant power structure so while you're doing the work all you are is a useful idiot okay so we i know we haven't talked a lot about the churches but there's some pastors that are just i'm going to just say it, they're useful idiots hmm. and, and somebody was saying rick you're you're being uh why you're saying that statement that's a statement if you know anything about history when someone was being used for a purpose but after that purpose fulfilled he just threw you away that's what's happening is that BLM, like BLM's getting all this money from corporations and people like we got to show we got to show our virtual signaling checkbox. Boom. We're, we're part of the cause. And you're only they're only using these organizations for a purpose. And once they have no use for you or think about this, if you wake up one day and decide, hey, I'm going I'm going to hit the pause button. 
you're only as valuable as the work you're currently doing. Doesn't matter what you did a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Are you doing the work right now? Well, again, with Nini's. Yeah. Right. They were yeah, doing exactly. They were that's doing the work. That's why I'm bringing these up. That's a uh-huh. perfect example of what interest convergence looks like. Right. They were doing the work. It, it wasn't popular. It wasn't something that was. Be- right. He, he was someone who this this man, this young man was a homosexual and his brother was a gangbanger. And his brother came to know the Lord and his life was radically changed. And of course, things happened throughout his life to where he was like, you know what? I saw this happening to my brother. Um, And so he goes to church. He ends up getting saved and his life was radically changed. And what overflowed from that was love and service to his community. And this same community that he loved on and worked like a slave for when there was, we said like two, three people coming in, maybe in an hour to when they Mm -hmm. had lines wrapped down the street. They had deals from Adidas and Nike. They had celebrities going there, taking pictures and wearing their clothes because of what they offered as as far as their service um, and their love. And then guess what? A black box turned all of that around to where they burned it down just because they didn't jump on the bandwagon um, right. to, to, to virtue signal about something that they actually already was living out. They were right. living this stuff out as far as treating neighbor um, right. Putting the neighbor before themselves and loving right. their neighbor as as God mm-hmm. loved them, right? And so, right. and so, so I want to I want to uh, see what you think about this because, like I said, there's these different ideas that are coming in. There's these different terms that the ball keeps getting kicked down where, you know, right. when the ball's rolling, it picks up dirt, right? And so mm-hmm. it's it's picking up all of these different views about terms that we might have agreed on before, but now we don't own that term anymore, right? Right. And so one of those terms is racism, right? Right. And so racism has to be viewed a particular way um, Mm -hmm. in such a way that black people can't fall in that category of being a racist. Now, I want to read something um, and let me let me get this um, this lady's name. Her name is Simone Samuels. Um, She's recognized by the medium as a top writer in racism. And she wrote this in an article last year in 2020. And this was her writing an article about the fact, supposedly, that black people can't be racist. And so this is what she says. If racism is about power, and I believe any accurate definition of racism must take power into account. And if racism is about oppression, at least on some level, as I have asserted that it is. And if power is determined by white supremacy and one's proximity to whiteness and if contextually speaking the holders of racial power in our society are white then black people cannot be racist um do you agree with this definition of racism of course not <laughs> why you not? already knew the answer to the question before you know it's kind of like rhetorical of course not right right why, it, why not it's, yeah so I, let me back up can, can i go in reverse because something she said i think it's so uh-huh. funny funny and yet sad at the same time is this proximity to whiteness right because i start thinking of my asian brothers right i start thinking of other people that are called like the new white (laughs) you know what i mean um and so um there's this whole idea of proximity where you kind of assimilate and put on kind of the the white clothes so to speak you kind of dress you kind of put on that persona and so I think she's alluding to that because then what it does, it becomes us versus them. 
us versus them. So remember the whole idea. This is this is pure Marxist thinking. And I don't want anyone to lose sight of the common themes, even this definition, power. So the whole idea that you only can be racist if you have if you are a part of the power class. I disagree with it because it doesn't fundamentally come from a biblical worldview. Jesus said in Mark 7 that all that defiles a man comes from within the man. And when Jesus made that statement, ladies and gentlemen, he wasn't thinking about this group versus that group. (laughs) He was talking about this is a universal issue of the heart. And so, yes, the issue is that definition has been has been modified. And one of the things I was going to mention before you uh, mentioned the thing about the sex workers is there's, there's this whole idea that what's going on with the, the civil rights movement is just, this is just a continuation, but it's, it's actually a distortion of the civil rights movement because the civil rights movement rightly focused on equality of all people and it wasn't looking at groups. This new movement that says it's the new civil rights movement, in fact, that's what M, uh, BLM said, we're not your grandfather's or your grandmother's civil rights movement or whatever they said. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not even a civil rights movement. You're a counterfeit. Okay, but what it is, is they're focusing on one group versus another group. That's not that's not civil rights. That's not that's not the historic civil rights movement. But they want to they want to claim that they're they're the continuation of it. So so in that definition, and I wanted to bring that out because I knew if I didn't say I was going to figure it. Hmm. So I finally got that out. But in that definition, we see that whole idea of power dynamics that unless you have power, you can't be racist. Know what we're doing? Now we're redefining sin. We're redefining what, what's clearly taught as biblical hermartiology. That is the biblical concept of sin. Because now the issue is now, who's the greatest sinner? Remember how earlier in our conversation I said there, that's this, there's a, uh, one of the examples of what's going on with critical race theory is the 1619th Project. That's being pumped into school districts all over the country and indoctrinating the minds of young people. Why did they start at 1619? Because what they're trying to do, just like this young uh, lady's trying to do with her definition, is to create what I call who's the biggest sinner. Because what we need to do, if we have a right view of injustice, and we should have a right view of justice, we need to look at world history. And when we look at world history, what we discover no one can claim one based on their melodin that anyone has the monopoly on sin, because what we find is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, the biblical record is consistent with history. But if your history starts, as you know, conveniently at a certain place in time to produce a certain narrative and you conveniently forget everything that became before it, you're not a truth teller, ladies and gentlemen. You're just tearing. You're just telling your narrative for a specific purpose and a specific end. Hmm. Now, would you agree that even with their definition, black people can be racist? Because of course, that's 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 it, why. It, if anyone yeah. didn't catch what I was saying, mm-hmm. that's what I was saying. Right, because when you talk about power structures, it's this embedded systemic thing. Um, right. But it all has to do with this power structure. Right. And well, wouldn't you say a power structure is? Um, the a, a bit one of those power structures be the ability to direct the thinking in the direction of a society through laws um and just this kind of a movement that can impact mm-hmm. your business closing tomorrow because you didn't put up yeah, your like box yeah like where you going 
right? I like where um, you're going. Right, it, it's changing laws to where the church might have to move yeah. in a certain direction. Your school now has to yeah. indoctrinate kids with this thinking. And so yeah. if this power structure is being yeah. headed and led right. by black people, yeah. can't you say, Look, well, if the definition of, uh, because yeah. the definition isn't just a part of the power structure, you have to have, you have to have the ability to change and to affect the livelihood right. of another ethnicity. And black right. people don't hold any of those positions. However, yes. If you offend me, guess what? You can lose your job tomorrow as a white person because you offended so, a black. So I can affect so, your livelihood. So let's talk about the fallacy of that definition mm-hmm. because I think that's what you're uncovering. It's it's uh, it, the self-stultification of that definition. It's a self-stultifying thing. It's like there's an internal con- uh, contradiction. And, and the, the issue is this. The very people who are propagating this definition Actually, that definition applies to them. Mm-hmm. That's what we're ultimately saying. And the, and the reason why we know it's true is because look at the evidence we see around us. If you don't virtual signal, if you don't subscribe, jump on the bandwagon, if you don't say the right thing at the right time, you will be canceled. Now, how, how can you be canceled if you lack the power to cancel that person, that organization, that individual? So power goes both ways, ladies and gentlemen. This whole definition that only uh, the, uh, the definition of the, I call it the almighty, all-powerful white man, that's kind of what they're holding up uh, that controls all things. That doesn't hold water, right? Because what we see ultimately is that the very people who are touting this perspective seem to be quite powerful themselves. So, so in light of that, but here's the thing. That shows you how that 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 proposition just crumbles. It, the plane doesn't get off the ground, ladies and gentlemen, because what ultimately happens when they present this definition, they have to turn around when they point one finger at one group is point three fingers back at themselves mm-hmm. because they're applying that same thing in order to. Here's the only thing in order to, quote unquote, deal with racism. You have to be a racist to deal with racism in their paradigm. That's the issue. And we can actually apply their definition to themselves. Hmm. And it's only the white man that can fix it too. the white man well, seeing, seeing their yeah, shirt coming. So they got to give up. You got to give up what you have to right the wrong. And, and so yeah, this, this so whole, this they, whole, this whole idea of white supremacy also though, yeah. right. Is the fact that it's supposedly the idea that um, the white man is the standard for all of these different things and we're assimilating into it. Right. And we have to fall into this, but even in order for us to move forward, don't we need the white man for, so are, yes. aren't you kind of bowing so, so, down so to this thing that do, you're fighting so here's against? The pro- yeah. So once again, the definition of white supremacy. So we dealt with racism. Let's deal with the definition of white supremacy. Another self-stultifying situation because by decrying white supremacy, they actually affirm white supremacy. By saying we can't we can't do anything without the white man. That is the even here's the thing. You will often hear people talk about black excellence. Well, that's a moot point if black excellence ultimately required uh, the cooperation of white people, Mm -hmm. because in their paradigm, you can only be successful if white people are involved. When you did it, you you got your success with the power. Right. You got your success in their system. Yeah, in their system. So, yeah, it, 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 it's a, like I said, it's a self-stultifying proposition because they've essentially turned white people into de- deify them. 
we can't we can't we can't pull ourselves up because this whole idea of this uh, monocausal idea that white supremacy is at the foundation of all the wrongs and all the atrocities and all the issues that are facing uh, people of color. It all fundamentally points to one issue. Uh, And so because once again, I want to make this point because it's not about truth telling. It's about propping a narrative and narratives now have the authority, not objective truth, not testing the evidence, not reasoning, because those are white ideas. Those are Western ideas that should be vilified. Right. Because of that, um, you can say something like that. But but you see, when you don't have truth on your side, and I think that's the thing. I hope as people are listening, you see how you end up tying yourself into a pretzel Hmm. when you don't have truth on your side. Absolutely. So now when we consider all of these things and we consider how destructive it is, um, would you say there's any redeemable qualities or characteristics um, that comes from a critical race theory? Yeah, there was a sad day, a sad day when there was a vote at the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a sad day because there was a vote for something called Res- Resolution 9 when it was devoted and passed that critical race uh, theory and intersectionality could be used as analytical tools. And the way it was positioned was, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, we hold up as the Bible, as the final authority. This doesn't supplant the authority of Scripture, but this is a useful tool. This can this could help us. This could help evaluate some things in society. And here's what I say. A broken clock is right twice a day, a broken watch or a broken clock, digital, whatever, but I wouldn't use it for any, re- for any meaningful purpose. And that's the way I look at CRT because at the root of CRT, as I've already said, it's godless. There's no reason. Here's the thing. The, the issue with CRT ultimately is an attack on the sufficiency of scripture because we have what we need. We've already uncovered, ladies and gentlemen, that CRT fundamentally changes the definitions of what has been given to us through divine revelation. If you take untruth and you mix it with the truth, you're only going to get untruth. This is a distortion. Mm -hmm. And so that this is the danger. The danger is when you have pastors, teachers, leaders who should know better. Right. If you're if you're leading a church. You should know better. And then someone will say, well, Rick, there, there, there could be some useful things in CRT. I say, don't touch it. There's, people keep saying, well, we can, you can separate the meat from the bones. No, it's, it's, it's a rotten foundation. If, if you hand me rotten meat and say, eat it, I, it's, not about, it's not about me separating meat from the bones. I'm throwing that sucker in the trash. Right, <laughs> exactly. It's not going in my mouth. Right, right. It has a rotten foundation to the core. And so we, we, we've exposed the foundation, and yet you have church leaders who are going around saying, look, look, you know, look how understanding I am. In fact, what they're ultimately doing, they're using what I believe is called like a Hegelian dialectic, where you take two premises, right, a thesis, antithesis, uh, and then you try to do a synthesis of blending one with the other. Guess what? Biblical truth discriminates, ladies and gentlemen. People don't want to use that word, but it does. There's not this truth over there and then God's truth and we can blend together. There's just God's truth. Mm-hmm. And everything must be submitted to the truth of God. In fact, things are only true because God exists. See, I'm a, I, one of the things I want to bring out in this discussion a little bit is I'm a presuppositionalist. 
So I start with God. I don't I don't play the game where I work my way up to God. We start with God. Right. We're not at God a place of neutrality. Given us his truth, his revelation. We don't need if we if you want to know about hum, uh, the human heart, we have a book for that. If you want to know about sin, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, we got a book for that. If you want to know about how to reconcile uh, this man to that man, guess what? We got a book for that. We already got the book. We don't need something else. Right, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. We already have the book. The problem is, that's why I said earlier, this is an attack on biblical sufficiency. This is attack on biblical application. Because part of what you're hearing some of these uh, individuals doing, I say, well, it's okay because Paul used uh, pagan philosophy in his teaching. And so what's the problem with using this over here? So now we have wrong application. We have bad hermeneutics and ultimately uh, a bad uh, view of the inerrancy of Scripture. Right. Because scripture's not enough. Right. Making something we need pre- something else. Right. Making something us. prescriptive that's actually yeah. a description of what happened. Right? It's not a prescription to do that. That's a description of mm-hmm. what so- something that happened yeah. in scripture. Right. Yeah, and, and Paul never here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, Paul never affirmed that those pagan philosophers who are pulling from a pantheon of gods. Mm-hmm. He never said, Hey, the, that's right. He never said that. Right, and he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't point to those things as a theory to right, yes, right the wrong that we have in our hearts. Right, and there he didn't use no that truth value. Right, he like, didn't use that to say to this is the way to God. No, that's not yeah. what he was doing there was at no all. No truth value in the teaching of the gospel and what he quoted. He un- he was wise enough to understand his audience. That's what that was. He was wise enough to understand his audience, but he he didn't validate that. He said, "Look, I'm going to point. I'm going to take your ignorance." Because in Acts 17, it talked about the ignorance of man. I'm going to point you to the true God and the true gospel, saving gospel. That's what Paul was doing. So Paul, so it so all goes was, back to Scripture. So Paul was pre-sub. So Paul was pre-sub also, <laughs> right? And so, so I believe he was pre-sub, right? right. I believe, you know, I'm going to say I believe Paul was a presuppositionalist. Hey, hey, he he had to be, you know. Yeah, he, he was he was an apostle, right? He he spoke mm-hmm. in. in we, we we get what Jesus said to do in the Great Commission is to go out and to and to baptize and to disciple. But what are you teaching? You're right. teaching those things that Christ taught. You're teaching the right. things that Christ revealed in greater detail in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so the whole foundation we have ought to be based off of, as you mentioned multiple times already, what has God said concerning himself in humanity? What has God right. said about the problem of humanity? And so to me, I'm looking at this and I'm like, well, this is like woke apologetics when I'm looking at CRT. Um, and so what would you say is biblical apologetics? Like how, how would you define yeah, it? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. And, and, and you don't mind me sharing a book? Oh, sure. Uh, so is it going to be the book that, uh, hold on, wait, don't even show yet. Oh, you already uh, showed the same book. Yes, the vo- I was gonna be. I was gonna promote that at the end. Expository apologetics, right? Go, oh ho- man, there go, we ahead go. go ahead and hold it up. Go ahead and hold it up. Yeah, you got the book. I see the red book. I'm gonna is see that, if I can find it real quick. It's red. It should stand out. Is this it? No, that's not it. I don't see it because it's really, really you, you, red. You like, can go ahead and talk, and I'm going to find it. It's it's somewhere. Yeah. Over. So when you the re, what caught my eyes when you said expository. Oh, there we are, brother. Yeah. There man. we go. There we go. There we go. Yeah, man. So yeah, this is the this book should be in your library. Okay. Yes, it's you, a must. Everyone needs to read this book. Okay, because a lot of times when you think about apologetics, 
you're thinking about someone in a debate, right? You're thinking someone like, think about someone like James White debating uh, against Islam, right? Uh, in a mosque somewhere in South, South Africa. <laughs> you're thinking about James White, a formal moderated debate, right? It's kind of like when a lot of times when people think about apologetics, but apologetics has a purpose, right? And so instead of thinking about winning arguments and debating who's the smartest, most, uh, 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 and most intelligent person in the room, there needs to be a goal in mind. There needs to be a focus in mind. So I'm going to, I'm going to read the definition um, of defining expository apologetics. And this, this is my heart before I even read this book, you know, back a while back before I even looked at this book, I was already doing this, not realizing I was, do- <laughs> I was doing this. Okay. Because earlier when you, when you introduced me, I talked about my passion for evangelism, my passion for sharing the gospel, but also dealing with some of the objections that people have to the, to the Christian worldview. So, um, so I'm going to read, and by, uh, by the way, I'm going to read just a few sentences here when it says defining, uh, there's a section of the book called Defining Expository Apologetics. It says, in its simplest form, apologetics is known what we believe and why we believe it. And being able to communicate that to others effectively, Titus 1 9, 1 Peter 3 15, Jude 1 through 4. Expository apologetics is merely the application of the principles of biblical exposition to the art and science of apologetics. It is based on the inerrancy, the infallibility, sufficiency, and authority of the Bible. If you don't, if you don't believe that the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. You can't get an apologetics. I mean, that's like prerequisite right there. That's the foundation, right? You have to believe this this is God's word and it's authoritative in your life, right? This approach to apologetics is not based on acquiring the latest knowledge in fields of astronomy, geology, physics, psychology, or comparative religion. This approach is based on the believer's need to have a firm grasp on basic truths and a willingness to share these truths when and where opportunities arise, our view is always towards gospel proclamation. That's the key. Too, much, too many of these apologists, let me say this, is focused on just winning an argument. So you won your argument. Now what? All right. You need to point people to Jesus. Mm. If your apologetic is not pointing people to Christ, it's in vain. Because we are called to go and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Hmm. That's our commission. Our, our commission is not go out and get into b- debates with people and, and win arguments, right? That's not, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. That's a good point because apart from the gospel, your apologetics glorifies yourself. Um, When you lead to the when you use the apologetics, someone said um, the gospel is the porch. Apologetics is just the steps. Right. You're walk. You're using apologetics to walk someone up these steps and that they will be landing on the gospel um, and that they walk through the door. Who is Christ? Now, I just added that part. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and copyright that. Um, but the whole the whole point of our apologetics, like you said, um, man, that's a great point. If, if the gospel is not mm-hmm. attached to it, okay, great, you won an argument, and now you look great. But yeah. how did you make God look right? 
Um, yeah. Not that he needs our assistance, but when you provide the gospel, it shows God's heart towards man. Um, when you just win an argument and you didn't lead them to anything, you just showed your heart, right? And, and this self-glorification. Now, I'm going to read something because the, the book is written by Vody Balcom, right? Mm-hmm. Junior. And this is important. He says that, um, he says, make no mistake, I am committed to apologetics as a consequence of my commit- commitment to evangelism. So my commitment to proclaim the good news is the is the grounds for me to provide my apologetic, not the other way around. My desire to proclaim. So here's here's another thing I think is important that he brought up because as we think about um, dispelling, disabusing people of the false ideas of apologetics, right, from a bil- biblical perspective, is that this takes place in the routines of life. This doesn't take place on a stage and some moderate debate. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got this event set up. This takes place at the barbershop. This takes place at the workplace. This takes place when you're out running errands. This take, you know, this takes place in the routines of life. You're not trying to be something. You're you're doing you and you're doing life. And in life, you God through his providence is providing opportunities. And he's taking the zeal and passion you have for proclaiming the truth and that opportunity. And when those two things come together, amazing things happen. Right. Absolutely. One last question here for you. Um, how do we as Christians? Right. Because we see the issues in the, in the in society. Right. We know there's a such thing as prejudice. Right. Discrimination. Right. Um, there's sinners. We all sin in different ways. And sometimes it has right. to do with the way one another like we look. Um, and so how, how do the Christian answer those things? So how, how do we properly contextualize apologetics in our country, right? And the, the, the problems that are facing our society. Um, but how do we do that faithfully to scripture, um, without the error of, of taking on these different ideas from philosophies that don't really provide true hope and peace? Yeah, so I think one of the things I think is really important is that if, if, if anyone takes a survey of the of the um, acts of the apostles, we have we have a pattern uh, for gospel preaching, and you have preaching before Jews and you have preaching before Gentiles, and so let like for example when you see um, uh, what what Paul does in the Areopagus and Mars Hill and Athens in Acts seventeen. That's different from what Stephen does, right, in Acts 7, right? Because Stephen's dealing with a group of people that have some concept of who God is, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have that foundation, right, already, where Paul is dealing with a group of people in Acts 17 that doesn't have that foundation. So part of what we're dealing with in this society is we're dealing with this pluralistic society where people in this country and even in the world are really starting from the vantage point of what you see in Acts 17, not Acts 7. So in Acts 17, the vantage point is having a right view of God because people, what we have to recognize, are coming to the table with all kinds of presuppositions. Guess what? We have presuppositions. And part of what we, we've had to do and we continue to do is to battle with our own presuppositions as we come to the text. What we can't do, ladies and gentlemen, is allow the rebel sinner, and I don't mind mixing words about saying this, to set the narrative, set the, set the stage for the conversation. 
because as we've already seen, and you looked at very, you know, in, early in our conversation, is that everyone has their own idea of what is what they want and what justice should be and what the priorities should be. So everyone has their own agenda, right, and their mm-hmm. own set of presuppositions. The ground is God. He, he is truth. He alone is truth in his revelation is bringing everyone to the foot of the cross, bringing everyone, regardless of their race, regardless of their history, regardless of their background, too many. And I'm going to say this. and I know I might get in trouble for this, but hey, I, I, at this point, I do not care. OK, <laughs> but too many people are doing apologetics where you're starting. You're trying to validate the person who the sinner before you get to the message. And so we're tailoring the message to, to lift up the rebel, to make things palatable for them. Guess what? Paul never did that, right? Paul didn't make the gospel palatable to the rebel sinner. He said it like it is. He wasn't trying to be offensive, ladies and gentlemen, but the gospel is going to be offensive. That's its very nature, right? It's like pruning a tree. It's like cutting out, you know, something that needs to be cut out. It's going to do that. And when we don't, we don't have what I say, we don't have the purview, we don't have the permission, and we don't have the authority, I'm going to say that, to alter the message, to change the message. Acts 17, Acts 7, Stephen and Paul, they started in different places because of their audiences were different, but the message was ultimately the same message. The message was ultimately about the personal work of Christ. The message was about the reality of the wrath to come and the one that we need to be in and put our faith and trust in so that we will be saved from the wrath to come. The message was ultimately about the trust that we can have and the consolation we can have in the finished work of Christ. The message was ultimately about the gracious and regal summons of God. What does Paul say in Romans 1 to the very beginning? This is the gospel of God. Therefore, by implication, I have no authority to tinker with that message. I don't care who that group is. And so I think and you can hear the passion in my voice because I'm very passionate about that. And I'm very uh, troubled when I see people wanting to start with we need to dignify people first before we tell them the message. Here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, is there dignity in light of the truth of the gospel? Yes. Because inside that truth, it affirms that we're all made in the image of God. But the goal ultimately is to have everyone submit to God, not to submit to the, uh, the ideas and the sensibilities of sinful man. When we do that, we undercut and short circuit uh, the purpose and intent of the gospel. Absolutely. Does that make sense? That makes perfect yeah. sense. And I think that's yeah. a great a great place to end it. Uh, for this episode, man, I, I appreciate you taking the time out. This is one of those conversations that really is never ending. <laughs> and yeah. so I, we definitely got to do this again, man. It was a joy. Yeah. I appreciate your insight. And, and I know that only scratches the surface. Um, I know you have a deeper study that you've kind of done on this already. So you can go ahead and share about that. But just take these last few moments. Um, if you wanted to wrap it up um, briefly, we have about um, eight minutes max left on the recording. Um, but if you want to just take these last few minutes just to share some final thoughts, if you have any, and then also let people know how they can find your your content and support you. 
First of all, I want to just say thank you, EC Holmes, for having me on your podcast. It was a delight and pleasure to talk about these very important, salient uh, uh, topic, uh, critical race theory. It's important. Uh, the other thing I would tell individuals is that we've only scratched the surface. There is so much we could have covered uh, in this limited span of time, and I, I want people to be uh, you're going to have to learn about this. Uh, first of all, your priority should be the Bible, first and foremost. Right. I see so many people running out buying this book, buying that book. Guess what? Your priority, number one, should be you should have a knowledge of the scriptures, right? That should be our priority. But you're also going to be, because you're going to run into people that have a different worldview, and this ultimately, uh, critical race theory is a different worldview. Uh, it's ultimately a different religion. Uh, has a, a different God, right? With a different canon. Uh, it's a different religion. I mean, we talked about that. So, so you're going to, you're going to run into people. So it's, it's, it's important that you understand, you can speak intelligently about these issues. Uh, one of the things that you don't want to be is a person that, you know, you're hearing things here and there and you haven't taken the initiative to do the homework yourself. So it's important that you read, read, go to the original sources and take time to read what the proponents of critical race theory believe and what they espouse, okay? Uh, the other thing in regards to uh, my channel, I have a YouTube channel uh, called Caldwell Apologetics. You can find me on YouTube by simply typing in Rick space Caldwell. I'm the, I should be the first search result. Please subscribe to my channel. And there is a video series on critical theory, critical race theory. It's it really, the, I believe the series is called, Is Critical Race Theory Compatible with the Christian Worldview? Obviously, based on if you heard this message, you already know where I stand on that. And you should know where the Bible stands. Absolutely. That's that's dope, bro. Let's do this again, man. I, I appreciate you. Um, thanks again for, for joining me, man. All right. Thank you, brother. That was Rick Caldwell of Caldwell Apologetics. I'm looking forward to having him on, hopefully in the future, um, to kind of dig into this a little bit deeper. There were some topics that um, we really didn't get to deal with that we wanted to. You know, you kind of the conversation gets going, you get excited, and you know, you, you kind of start going off script, which is great. Um, I hope this was useful for you guys. But make sure you follow Caldwell Apologetics. I'm going to provide some links in the description box, along with other helpful resources that explain why critical race theory is not compatible at all with the gospel or the christian faith i will also provide a link to expository apologetics by Vodi balcom if this episode has been helpful to you please let me know in the comment section let me know by giving that like go ahead and share subscribe to the channel follow us on social media um, after you do that remember don't forget please go ahead and leave a review on itunes i would greatly appreciate it but for now this concludes episode 22 the main topic woke versus biblical apologetics thanks for listening to that deity though wisdom and knowledge revealed